Meetup is the world's largest platform for finding and building community. We have 57 million members all around the world in 193 countries, and we have 300,000 different groups. One of the things that I love about Meetup is the overlap of the personal and the professional. I think in business, as you try to build community, and as people from Cutco Vector think about how they could build their influence and build relationships, the personal and the professional just overlap so meaningfully. And that's what community is about. Community is about people who could be very different from each other, helping to support each other, helping to show up for each other, and not having an agenda other than having someone else enabling them to be more successful. Today's guest is David Siegel, the CEO of Meetup. David has had 25 years of experience as a technology and digital media executive, leading organizations through innovation, growth, and change. He holds a BA and an MBA from the University of Pennsylvania and is an adjunct professor at Columbia University. He also released a new book titled Decide and Conquer on March 8th. Most of all, David is an expert at building community. His insights can help you expand your reach, accelerate your own development, and grow your influence both personally and professionally. I'm honored and grateful to feature him as a special guest today. This is David Siegel. Welcome to Changing Lives Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Cassetta. This podcast was originally created to spotlight the leaders, alumni, and friends of the Cutco Vector Marketing community who are leveraging their positive influence to empower people all over the world to change their lives. Every few weeks, we go outside of the Cutco Vector sphere to bring you a guest who is teaching others how to have a more successful and fulfilling life, both personally and professionally. The special guests we bring to you here in episodes like today's are successful entrepreneurs, best-selling authors, superstar business executives, and transformational leaders from many walks of life. The lessons they share are compelling, real-world concepts for business and life. Through hearing real-life stories and hands-on experiences, you'll gain insights that can help you in whatever it is that you do in life. Thanks for pressing play. Let's get on with today's episode. Welcome to Changing Lives Podcast, everyone. I'm with David Siegel today, the CEO of Meetup. And I want to shout out to John Levy for introducing us. He mentioned that David would be a fantastic guest that would add tremendous value to the Cutco Vector audience. David, welcome to the podcast. Pressure is on. Tremendous guest. Okay, I will hopefully not let you down. Good to be here. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I know you have a lot of value to add. You have a wealth of experiences. And you'll tell us a little bit about Meetup today, as well as we'll talk about uh, your new book that's just coming out here. So looking forward to this. Start by telling us a little bit about your personal background, David. I want to get to know you a little bit. Okay. So I wish I could say that like five years old, I was a Cutco Vector salesperson. And if I were, I'd probably be a lot more successful today. <laughs> so unfortunately, I can't say that about five years old. But at five years old, I did have a lemonade stand and I did sell things. And uh, I certainly had like the business mindset, you know, at an early age. My career really started mostly after graduating from college. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I actually went into human resources, which is pretty uncommon for someone to go from HR into becoming a CEO. But I was really lucky, actually, because 
HR focuses on recruiting people, managing people, motivating people, hiring top talent, aligning strategy. And that's a lot of things that a CEO actually ends up doing. So it was somewhat fortuitous from that perspective. And I also was very lucky early in my career to work in the late 90s for this thing that started called the internet and the World Wide (laughs) Web. And no one had ever heard of it back when I graduated or barely knew it in 1997. And my first client out of school was DoubleClick. I mean, they were my biggest client. It ended up being the Silicon Alley, New York digital company, kind of driving advertising and stock went from, you know, 10 to 300 back down to 10, you know, in 2000 with a crash. So I was an early employee at DoubleClick. I met someone named Kevin Ryan, who then became my lifelong mentor, ended up acquiring Meetup, you know, 20 years later. And then I just really went up through a series of roles in different industries and different companies, going from a vice president to a senior vice president to become president of a company called Seeking Alpha, and then became CEO of the world's largest financial education site called Investopedia, followed by We Were Called, came a knocking, couldn't turn Adam Newman down, and then became CEO of Meetup about three and a half years ago. And Meetup, for those who don't know, is the world's largest platform for um, finding and building community. And besides that, I also teach entrepreneurship and strategy at Columbia. I have a podcast called Keep Connected. And most importantly, I have an amazing wife and three exceptionally awesome children, teenagers, and uh, I'm very lucky from that perspective. That's so cool. And you grew up in New York City and you still live in New York City? So I actually was born in Kentucky, in an army base in Kentucky, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. So not not the most common place for kind of a New York transplant, but my father was drafted and he was a physician in the army. And I was there for some time. And then my father was a, was a neurologist and he opened up a practice in Connecticut and it ultimately became the largest neurological practice in the state of Connecticut with like 40 to 50 employees. So he was a real entrepreneur as a physician. I actually worked for him when I was 15 as an electroencephalograph technician, EEG technician, where I hooked elderly people up and, and children to see whether or not they get seizures. So that might've been like preparation for my life at WeWork. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. And I live in the New York metro area, an area called Westchester County, which is uh, north of the city in the nice suburban area. Got it. Nice. And for uh, schooling, you went to UPenn and then continued at Wharton. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. So at UPenn, I studied because I had no idea what the heck I wanted to study. I didn't want to become an expert in anything. Philosophy, political science, and economics was a major. So like a non-major major, knew nothing about a, a little bit about a lot of different topics. And then, and then after deciding I wanted to go from HR into ideally becoming a CEO, I knew I had to get like a business school pedigree and, and I wanted something with a strong finance background and, and Warden you know, had that. And, and that's where I went for business school too. Very cool. And so you've had this wealth of experiences over your career. You've moved in and out of like, I want to say about 10 different companies in a relatively short period of time throughout your career here. What do you feel like you've learned or gained by taking on multiple new challenges like that? Yeah, I think there's a reason why some people, when they first start off in their careers, decide that they want to go into consulting. Because what you do is you get exposure to all these different types of companies. And then sometimes you realize that you know, a challenge that you have in manufacturing, let's say, can end up helping you to figure out and have a totally different perspective for a challenge that you're then in the retail industry or in the tech industry. So I'm a real big, deep believer in finding in that 
problems are always multifaceted. Actually, I learned that in school, that in terms of my major, we focused on philosophy, political science, and economics. Take the Civil War or whatever challenge that you have. It wasn't because of economics. It wasn't because of philosophy. It wasn't because of political science. It's because of kind of the intersection of all three of those things. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're able to have worked for a variety of different companies, a variety of different industries, then it allows you oftentimes to take a very different approach to a problem and see things not just from a sales perspective, not just from a marketing perspective, not just from a product perspective, but see the relationships between different industries and also different challenges to come up with kind of oftentimes a more creative solution. And it happens all the time. I'll be in a meeting with a leadership team and I'll say, oh, when I worked for a pharmacy chain, we dealt with a problem that was similar to this and you'll be able to come up with solutions in kind of a very different type of perspective. And I think that's healthy. Yeah. Uh, so that makes a lot of sense that it just helps you to have a, a whole lot of additional perspective to find solutions for the many different problems that come up when you're running a large organization. What do you feel like has been your most transformative experience in leadership? It's a good question. I don't want to say the obvious, which is kind of my current job at Meetup. I would probably say Investopedia, my first CEO gig. And the reason for that is that the company, when I first started, was really nascent. It, it had 25 employees. We grew it to 150. It had 11 million in revenue. We grew it to about 35, 36 million, you know, over triple the size. And we built the culture of the company. It was very distributed company with kind of a very vanilla, no culture, really. And what I love doing in leadership and leading community or leading teams is helping to build a culture. Because if you have the right culture, you end up setting an environment up where smarter decisions get made, where people can thrive, where people are excited about work, people feel empowered. So I would say that was the most transformative experience because I got to set up a culture kind of from nothing. Whereas when I joined Meetup, the company had a very deep ingrained culture for 16 years prior. uh, And that was a very different type of situation. So I really enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. In Cutco Vector, David, there's a distinct company culture that exists that's been around for a long time. But each individual manager in our company begins building their own new team when they start. And so they have an opportunity to either create their own new culture or piggyback off of the company culture or some combination of both. You know, what would be your perspective on how somebody could best create a culture on a new Cutco Vector team, given what I just shared with you? Okay, I love that question. The answer, like most things, is usually in the combination. And let me explain why. The most important thing in building a culture is for it to truly represent who you are as a leader. If in any way it is not representative of who your authentic self is, if let's say part of your culture, I'm making this up, is kindness, and that's not something that's the big part of the way in which one goes about doing business or one part of the culture is analytical or whatever it is, then you can't fake it. People will know. And then it's just something, a bunch of values that are kind of up on a wall and don't actually mean anything or have any teeth. So I would say a leader at Cutco Vector would be well-suited to look at the company values, to ask themselves truly, if someone described me, would they be using these words to describe me or not? And leverage all the same words and terms that Cutco Vector has in part of your business. But 
if there's anything there that doesn't represent who you are or is or is different, then be comfortable with taking potentially one or two away and adding one or two that really represent who you are, because that's ultimately the business that you're trying to build around yourself. And you'll have optimal success, you know, from that perspective. That's a powerful insight and uh, definitely something maybe we can circle back to that a little bit when we talk about meetups specifically and uh, and some of the ways that you've established the, the culture and values there. I'd like to hear, David, about uh, some of your toughest times throughout these experiences because you've gone through these different roles. You've had success at some and some weren't as successful as I've read you know, in your book. And I think that that's part of having shaped you into who you are and, and probably part of the strengths you have now uh, as a leader. So what do you feel was your toughest time over the course of your career and, and how'd you get past that? I think sharing failures so important in terms of like driving success. You know, just coincidentally today, Forbes wrote an article about the book and the person who wrote the article highlighted the biggest failure, the biggest mistake that I made in my career. And then I share it with the world. And people said, hey, are you upset that, you know, that's the one thing that Forbes wrote about? And I'm like, no, failures are there. The bigger the failure, the bigger the opportunity for learning. So the failure that was highlighted was that when I came to Meetup, the business was losing $18 million in profit. It was, it was really a big problem from a financial standpoint. It didn't, if you don't have profit, you don't have sustainability, and then you have a risk of potentially shutting down. So my priority was make Meetup sustainable, make sure Meetup can succeed for the future. And that had to do with, and I had to reduce some costs as part of that. There was so much stress and so much antagonism and so much worry after having a layoff that there would be another one. And I truly believed in my heart of hearts that we would not have another layoff, that we were kind of done. That when someone asked me in an open forum, they said, David, is there going to be another layoff? I made a terrible mistake. And I said, we're done. You don't need to worry. We're done. Now, lo and behold, not six months later, but a year later, we had to unfortunately take action a second time because of some other challenges going on at WeWork. And that was a huge mistake because the number one thing you could do as a leader is to build trust. And if you lose trust of your people, you've lost any semblance of a relationship. I once had the opportunity to sit down with Jack Welch, the famous CEO of GE. When he left, it was the highest market cap company in the entire world, in fact. He actually won Time Magazine's manager of the century. And I said to him, what's the one piece of advice you would give me? in terms of being a leader. And he said, build trust with your employees. And the best way to do that is to be as transparent and open and honest as possible. So I made a mistake. People called me out on it. They were absolutely right. And the best thing to do is to acknowledge it and to say, I was wrong. Leave it at that and not be defensive, not give excuses. Just, I was wrong. What a powerful example. And, and I certainly would echo this idea that building trust is the foundation for all success as a leader. I can remember reading the five dysfunctions of a team and absence of trust is like the base of the pyramid. It's like everything is built on, you know, having trust with the people who are around you. And, and there are a lot of ways that that is built up that we can also discuss today, I'm sure. Dan, um, I just got to tell you, last week we had an offset of our executive team in person, finally, so happy about that. And our book, club book for our executive team was the five dysfunctions of a team. <laughs> and we did that and we sat around and we had everyone read it and talk about what are some of the ways in which we can incorporate that model into our business. 
And we went around and we did a number of exercises. So it's a really wonderful book. I'm glad you called it out. Yeah, fantastic. Great minds think alike. So in our company, uh, David, we give people a chance to run their own operation at a very early age. I was 19 years old when the company gave me the chance to run a, a territory as a summer manager. This is in between two years of college. I'm doing this for like three, four months. You know, it's a quick sprint and it's called being a branch manager. And, and we, we do this for our people every summer. We have several hundred people across the company that will run a, a little area and be able to recruit and build their own team. Some of them do really well. Some of them do, you know, okay. And others just totally flop because it's really hard to be responsible for everything from A to Z, even with a lot of support, a lot of training and guidance, it's hard. And so a lot of people fail at this endeavor. And yet almost all of them come out of this endeavor saying, man, that was so awesome. I'm so glad I did this because I learned so much. But yet they did fail to produce a result. So they failed in a different way than you were describing where you misspoke about future layoffs and then had to own up to that. They failed in terms of you know having set goals for sales and revenue and then totally flopped. What advice would you give to young entrepreneurs about facing failure in their first business? The first thing is context. Understand the vast majority of people fail. You are the exception not the rule if you succeed. And once you understand that you are in enormously a great company, if you fail, it lets you take a step back and say, okay, how could I debrief? What could I learn from the experience? What could I have done differently? Am I the right fit for this role? Or is, is it is just, I, I have some great skills, but those don't match up necessarily as well. And maybe I should find something that's the right fit for me. So the sooner that you're able to actually acknowledge the fact that it's okay to fail, in fact, it's sometimes even better to fail because you learn more from that failure, the more that that opens up opportunities to be vulnerable and then transparent around what your really areas are of strength and areas of challenge, which will hopefully then set you up the next time to be then more successful or just, you know what? to fail a little bit less. And that's okay too, just to keep failing a little bit less. And then that's the path towards you know, finding success. Yeah. I just feel like if people aren't failing, then they aren't testing the outer limits They're of their trying. capability. Exactly. Exactly. Right? We have to be doing things where we struggle. Otherwise, we're, we're certainly not growing at the level that we could be growing. Yeah. Through pain comes the greatest growth. Through mistakes, some of them come the greatest opportunities. And, you know, I'm fortunate to have been in a position to have made quite a few mistakes and acknowledge them. I think when people fail to learn from those mistakes, it's, it's the biggest missed opportunity. And it takes a certain level of confidence and kind of self-awareness to be comfortable saying, I messed up, I made a mistake. But ultimately, it actually mistakes paradoxically and failures can end up making you potentially more confident. Because then the quote unquote worst happened and you're still okay. As opposed to people that are just have inertia and they're afraid to get out there and do things and they're just in this paralysis analysis mode, that's not okay. Great insights. I just love that you've had this such a wide range 
of experiences and that you openly talk about how some of them have gone well and some of them you've struggled and and what you've learned and just how it's all brought you to where you are now. So it's a it's a really cool story you have. Thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about Meetup. Tell us first uh, how it works. Okay. So Meetup, as I mentioned, is the world's largest platform for finding and building community. We have 57 million members all around the world in 193 countries, everywhere but like North Korea. And we have 300,000 different groups. And the groups could be everything from a hiking group, a bowling group, a learning Spanish, learning Swahili group, a photography appreciation group, or even a WordPress group, or a Android developer group, or a Cutco Vector, you know, type type group. It could be groups around people's personal passions. It could be groups around people's professional needs. And and one of the things that I, I love about Meetup is kind of the overlap of the personal and the professional, meaning there's a Meetup organizer and he has two groups. One of the groups is a bowling group where he created because he loves bowling. The other group he created was a networking group because he wanted to find a job. He ended up getting his first two jobs from his bowling group. And he ended up meeting like his best friend from the networking group. And, and like, I think in business, as you try to build community and as people from Cutco Vector kind of think about how they could build their influence and build relationships, the personal and the professional just overlap so meaningfully that you could create a community around a personal topic of interest. It could be a book club group about kind of studying business. It could be anything, but that can morph into something so much more. And the key is that, again, you're your authentic self and it's something that you're personally passionate about. And that passion could translate into so many other aspects of one's life outside of just kind of the straight topic of a particular you know group. We have rock climbing group that resulted in like six marriages and has nothing to do with dating. You know, those kind of things happen. Wow. So I'm just thinking about the communities that I'm a part of. Of course, the Cutco Vector community is pretty, pretty large and that's a significant one. I have become part of a community of dads across, well, it started with just across the United States, but now it's actually in several countries that- Is it, what, what's the name of the group? Is it City Dads or not? No, it, it's Front Row Dads. Okay. And it was started by a friend of mine who is an old Cutco colleague. And that's a group that I've become a part of that's really, really cool and has you know affected me powerfully over the past five, six years. I also have a group that I started here in the Silicon Valley where I got together with a friend of mine and said, hey, let's, let's find the 12 most successful people we've ever met and let's just put them in a room together and have a conversation and see what happens. And we sort of started with that in mind and we gathered some key Silicon Valley leaders and some other people from a, sort of an eclectic you know, group of activities and just people that were super good at what they were doing. And, and we started that and that, that has grown now. And so those are a couple of groups that I've formed independent of Meetup. These are the types of things that Meetup could easily facilitate someone forming in their own community. I'll give the City Dads example. That's why I asked that because one of our most successful groups was a group started about 10 years ago. It was a couple of guys actually who were tired of always going to mommy and me classes. They were stay-at-home dads and they didn't have he didn't have a community kind of around him of other stay-at-home dads because unfortunately at that time, it wasn't as common for dads to be the primary caregivers you know, for, for a family. 
So he got together, he formed a group with two other people. That group now has over 10,000 people across 30 or 40 different geographies all around the country. And one, as you said, as I, as, as you mentioned also internationally, and it supports people and it builds community. And so many people have gotten job opportunities from it. When they move to, what happens is a dad is in the group in New York, the dad moves to Atlanta and Atlanta, there's no group and it spawns a group in Atlanta. And then in that Atlanta group, the song that moves to Raleigh and it spawns a group in Raleigh. And it's, it's, it's really transcends just being a dad. And just like your groups that you're a part of, they're so multifaceted and you could talk about, you know, really personal relationships and personal things in your groups, having nothing to do with kind of the identity of the group. And that's what community is about. Community is about people who could be very different from each other, helping to support each other, helping to show up for each other and not having an agenda other than having someone else kind of enabling them to be more successful. And, uh, you know, that's why it's such an important part of what we do at Meetup, you know, what I care about. And I'm so glad that you have those three and probably other communities as well, Dan. It's, it's, it's wonderful because some people don't. And, it's, and that's unfortunate. Yeah, I, I certainly have a number of others too. And I'm just thinking about people could be part of a group that's based on others who want to go mountain biking, right? Or they could be part of a group of people that share the same interest in a sport that they play or that they follow right? They want to have a discussion group about the Golden State Warriors. They could, you know, have something like that. There's literally everything under everything. the sun. Dog lovers group, cat lovers group, whale lovers group. <laughs> we really do have quite everything. And, and some of the groups are very business oriented, like people who are Android developers or Google, Google app developers. And it could be also, you know, people who, you know, have a passion, you know, for sales and, and sales groups and, and learning sales, you know, across different areas. So, you know, it's a way to meet people who share one thing perhaps that they're very passionate about, but could be totally different, you know, religion, ethnicity, age, everything else. And you meet these people that you never would have met before. And like, you know, a friend of mine is part of a horror film loving meetup group and he's 50 and he hangs out with people that are 25 and people that are 75, 80 years old. You never would have hung out with 80 year olds or 20 year olds. And it's just, it's just awesome for him to be able to have that. And they all share that common passion and they all go out to dinner afterwards and, you know, you know, talk about whatever thing horror film people talk about. Yeah. So cool. How does someone jump in and get started? Yeah. I mean, I would say the best thing to do is if you're, you know, technology forward, download the app. That's step one. We have an iOS app. We have an Android app. Download the app. We have millions of app downloads. And then just peruse and just check out, like type in your, you know, you can see what city you're in and just look at all the stuff going. You're like, oh my God, this looks cool. Board game group. I love board games. You know, whatever, whatever the, the group happens to be. And then the best thing to do is don't think too hard. Just RSVP to an event, show up, see how you like it. And then if that's great, keep going. If not, check out another group, but it's just so easy, low pressure and just get off the couch and do it as opposed to kind of you know, watching a lot of TV or whatever it is that the, the young folks do these days. Yeah. And do events happen both live and via Zoom? Yeah. Yeah. Actually, I just looked at the numbers. We're now 72% in person and 28% is um, through Zoom or another video conferencing kind of platform. And the Zoom ones are great because you could go to an event in freaking like Mongolia and like, that's really interesting, you know, to Zoom. We've had ecstatic dance meetup groups where like there are people from 20 different countries all like dancing together, right? And we have, you know, women in product management groups where, you know, people are sharing experiences from, you know, India 
and China and, you know, Kansas City or, or Portland. So, so the cross geographic groups are powerful, but also then you can't do them in person. I personally love the in-person type connecting, but both have tremendous value. Yeah. So once somebody's in one of these groups, they obviously want to make the most of it. And I would love just to get some of your insights on what do you feel helps people to establish really powerful personal connections with people that they meet in, you know, in these ways? Yeah. So I would say start off attending. And then if you really want to get the most out of the Muta platform, become an organizer. Figure out how to like choose something you're passionate about and organize in that group. And and the beauty of that is that you could then build the culture of the group, just like we talked about culture earlier. You could build the things that are important to you. And the first time you might have it, three or four people show up. And the next time, 10 people show up. Before you know it, you know, the fourth or fifth time, you got 20 or 30 people coming. And, and that's, you know, you watch, just like you watch your territory kind of growing and being built, you watch that community also growing and maturing and evolving. And that's the power. So what I would say is, if you're a Meetup member, then figure out if you'd be interested in trying to become a leader and become an organizer or something you're passionate about and want to meet other people that share those passages. And Meetup then markets it to our whole database of 57 million people to find people to sign up for it. And if you're an organizer, then the key thing to do is schedule your first event. Don't aim for perfection. Don't wait till like you have at least a hundred people that are going to show up and for it to be like a total A plus experience. It's okay to meet in a Starbucks and have three or four people show up and just meet three or four new friends and then take it to the next one and have four to six people there and kind of grow from there. Yeah. Sounds neat. I like it. I like it a lot. I feel like in, in meeting people, one of the mindsets that contributes to having strong connections is that you're you're not networking so that you can figure out what those people will do for you, but you're networking where you can figure out what could you do for them and how could nice. you bring value to others. And that's always been the mindset I have in trying to get groups together. No, I think that's beautiful. And I even don't like to think about like the term networking because for so many people, that's intimidating to them and, and they're afraid to go to network events. Instead, just call them like curiosity events. Like, I'm interested in a lot of different topics. You're interested in different topics, politics, history, whatever the thing happens to be. When, when you go out there, don't put too much pressure on yourself that you need to make that top business contact. You need to make that new best friend forever. You show up, you meet people, no pressure. It's the same thing with dating. If you put this tons of pressure on like the, pers- the first date, it's going to be an amazing date. It not, might not live up to that expectation and then you're going to be disappointed afterwards. And if you kind of, Keep thinking about how I could help someone versus how someone could help you. You help someone, you feel good about helping someone. Karma is a real thing. Good things will happen to you if you aim, like you said, to try to help people. Exactly. It, it sounds like Meetup is, is just a great, great tool for people in the Cutco Vector community to, to be able to leverage, to meet other like-minded individuals uh, You know where they are that are outside of the Cutco Vector sphere. Cause we get such great positive influence in the Cutco Vector sphere that a lot of people end up just hanging out with their colleagues all the time. And I think being able to expand outside of that is a great idea. And this is a perfect tool to do it. Yeah. And then they could bring people into the sphere as well, or, you know, have people on both sides. And uh, it really is a, a great way to just find people that share a passion around something and good things happen when you're able to meet those people. So definitely figure out how to take advantage of it. Yeah. Great. Very cool. Very cool. 
So you referenced in, in your role as CEO that you know you're you're using a lot of the skills you've gained throughout your wide range of experiences, including being in, in HR. You're responsible for helping to recruit the right people and finding good talent and establishing the culture. I really want to talk about this idea of establishing the culture and establishing core values mm. and how you've done that at Meetup. You've referenced that you have engaged your employees and your team in the process of creating the core values for the organization. How do you do that? So first, core values cannot be just a top-down thing. These are the values. You must listen. It doesn't really work effectively. What we did is we developed kind of a working group of people that were very different from each other. Some people had just joined Meetup you know, a few months prior, and other people have been there for like eight, nine, 10 years in the company and had really seen the ups and downs and all the challenges. People who were very senior and very junior. We got this cross-functional group together without me, without the CEO. And they talked about what are the attributes that make working at Meetup a different experience than working at other places. It's not just stuff that they care about or they like, because that's less important. It's at Meetup specifically, how do we work? What, so it, it, it's, there's, there's the what you do and there's the how you do it. And, there's, and the how you do it is really where your values come in. And we answered some of those questions and we came up with really six values. And then they presented me some ideas. And then it was incredible how much alignment there really was between us. And then we, you know, played with the language a little bit for, for different items, which is, and language is important, but the concepts were incredibly consistent between what employees had suggested that we focus on and then what we ultimately ended up rolling out. And the key is that they can't just be something on a wall. We put them through our... We use them for everything. We use them across recruiting and performance management, 360-degree feedback and and promotions. And we use them kind of as an anchor in so many different company decisions. We give awards out to people based on achieving certain values. You know, very, very important. And what are the, the core values that your group and you came up with? Okay, so here you go. There are six core values. The six are the following. So number one is trust and transparency. We talked about the importance of building trust. Talked about the best way to build trust is through being transparent. That means sharing financials with the organization. It means sharing our full board presentations with the, with, the, with the organization. We're very focused. The more that you share, the better ability people have to make smarter decisions. And we want people to make as smart decisions as possible with as much information. We want to empower people to make decisions. So trust and transparency is number one. The second is called focus on impact. You want to have as big an impact as you can. But if you're doing a million different things and you're doing like a C-level job at all of them, you're not focused. You're not going to have an impact. So if you are focused, you're going to have a greater impact. So focus on impact is the second. The third is invite change. And we've had lots of change due to the pandemic and due to WeWork and a whole bunch of different things. But there's a difference between like accepting change, like, oh, change happened. Okay, fine. Versus I'm inviting change. I'm proactive in saying change is good. Change is healthy. Change helps us to kind of survive and grow as a company. Inviting change is the third. The fourth is stepping up. And stepping up is saying, just because your job description happens to be X, Y, Z, just because you're 19 years old, doesn't mean that you can't step up to become a territory sales manager. Just because you've been doing something for a year and a half and you're killing it, doesn't mean that you can't get promoted. Do the job beyond what your role and responsibilities are. And then that's how you get promoted to that next job and responsibilities. Don't say, like when someone says the term, that's above my pay grade. I hate that. 
you know, not, if you want to get that pay grade, then start doing that. And then good things will end up, end up ultimately happening from that. So stepping up the fifth is elevating people goes to like my HR background and that good things, all good things happen through people and because of people. And part of meetup is kind of connecting with people. And last is leading with integrity, which is really the most important because if you don't have integrity, you really don't have anything. And it has to weave through every single thing that we do as a company. That was excellent. And, and so this is a list that was sort of begun by a focus group that was a diverse group throughout your organization that came up with some ideas without you there. Mm-hmm. And then it, it kind of hatched from there and you massaged the words and kind of talked through it and concluded on these are the six core values. These are the pillars of our organization. And then throughout, we were engaging employees. So it's not like we just did the focus group. I went to a room and then we, it's, there was so much back and forth. It's the kind of thing where sometimes fast is slow and slow is fast. And as it comes to building company values and culture, slow is fast there. You want to do it in a methodical way. You want to get feedback throughout the process. You want to show drafts and get early feedback throughout that. And when we finally rolled it out. Everyone was just like, yeah, that's kind of what we expected. And, and they're, they're thri- they liked it and because they, they had been part of that process the entire time. It wasn't something like, hey, where did that come from kind of thing. Yeah. And when they're a part of it, there's obviously significant uh, greater buy-in exactly. uh, from the team. And how long was this process uh, all Oof, in all? Long. It was a uh, three to six month long process. Okay. It was really, we took it very seriously in that we wanted to engage as many different people as possible. And there just it just wasn't the kind of thing I think that you want to rush. And when you're new to the company, you want to just take some time to make sure that everything that you're planning on building in terms of a culture is actually true. And if you say, I'm new to this territory and you know I know better than anyone else, a lot of times you could be wrong and it's very hard to then change those values later on. So it's more, it's, some things is very easy to change. You roll the product out, it has a mistake, it has a bug, easy enough. You, know, you, you fix it, you roll it back out and you do something differently. Those are easy mistakes and easy things to fix. But other things are much harder, what your company mission is and what your company values are. So because the stakes are high, it's more important to do them kind of slowly, more methodically, you know, in approach. Yeah. Three three to six months to me does not feel long for a company of your guys' size. Like that feels like a, a good length of time. I would have even guessed you were going to tell me 12 months or, or something like that. So that's cool. Nice. Uh, so, hey, you've got a new book. It's coming out on March 8th. I can see it over your shoulder right there. You got one of the advanced copies right there. That's so cool. It's called Decide and Conquer. What motivated you to write the book, first of all? Sure. So I have always been obsessed with kind of decision-making. And people don't realize every person makes like a thousand decisions every day. If you're brushing your teeth, like, when should I brush my teeth? You know, there's so many things you're making decisions about constantly. Some are inconsequential, like the toothbrushing, unless you obviously never brush your teeth. That's a definitely a serious consequence. But so many others could have a big impact on your business and your life. And you don't even aware of how many decisions you're making. And then I read this quote by Theodore Roosevelt, and it said, the best decisions are good decisions. The second best decisions are bad decisions. And the worst decisions are no decisions. And I was like, oh, so I've been obsessed with decision-making, but I didn't mm. want to create like a typical textbooky type of book, that business book that is kind of boring. I don't like reading those. I don't want to write something like that. So I had the concepts, but then WeWork happened and there were so many crazy experiences of being part of Adam Newman and WeWork 
and divesting the company out of WeWork and then running Meetup during a pandemic when you couldn't actually meet up and so many crises and challenges that it served as incredibly storytelling to help to teach people around decision-making biases that exist out there because we all have biases and best practices and values when it comes to making smarter decisions. So that's why I wrote the book. Yeah, and in the book, you reference 40-some different challenges that have come up, 44 challenges that have come up over the course of your career and what you did and how it worked in those instances. And uh, in setting up the 44 decisions, you describe a decision-making framework that you use. And there's these 11 principles of your decision-making framework. I want to ask you about a few of those. The first one I want to ask you about is the very first one, which is the concept of be kind. Why is that first in your decision-making framework? Great. Everything comes back. Your reputation matters forever. And in the world that we live in, everything can be documented and and digitized and everyone knows everything that can happen. And we talked about trust earlier. And, And the reason why it's important to me is because I think people don't oftentimes understand the difference between being nice and being kind. Sometimes people focus on being nice. It's not nice to hurt someone's feelings and tell them that they're not doing a good job and they need to work on their job. It's not nice to acknowledge the fact that someone might be making a mistake or failing. But sometimes the kindest thing you could do is say to someone, this might not be for you. And focusing on being kind versus nice is very important because as a leader, your goal is to be kind, which might at times mean not necessarily saying the nicest thing. You want to be respectful, but not doing nice and people feel good kind of around you all the time. If you make everyone want to feel good around you, then you'll be doing all these different things. You'll be misaligned and it'll lead to lots of problems. So I just think the the key thing in terms of decision-making is how do you make a decision that's a kind decision rather than just a decision that's, you know, quote unquote, nice decision. And sometimes hard decisions are are kindest. I like that distinction there between being kind versus being nice. And then just the reminder that, you know, everything comes back, right? That uh, especially for young leaders, the kind of young leaders that we're influencing, like their reputation is going to follow them for a long, long time. So it's so much shorter and quicker to destroy trust and destroy a reputation than it is to build it for sure. So, it, is. it is. Yeah. So then you've got another part of the framework, which is work for your employees. Tell me your perspective on that. Yeah. So I like talking about and trying to live, not just talk about the upside down organizational chart which is like the CEO and the leader is in the bottom of the chart. Our job is to support and enable the success of the people that report to us. And their job is to support and enable the success of the people who report to them. And if all my executive team, all the leaders who report into me are doing a great job and I set them all up for success, guess what? I'll be doing a great job as a CEO. It's impossible that they're all doing a great job and everything's moving and shaking, doing great. And I'm failing, quote unquote. So Don't focus on yourself, but focus on how you could support and enable the success of everyone around you. And that means understanding that your job is to support your employees. And if you have a territory and each of the people in your territory are hitting and beating their number, guess what? You're probably going to end up beating your number too. And that's what Mm -hmm. it's about. Yeah. And and sometimes does that mean making decisions that aren't in your own best interest in the short term because you're acting in the interest of your people? The answer is, it's a tough one. If something is actually going to hurt you and be truly negative for you, then you really do have to ask yourself, am I going to be resentful 
if I make this decision that's bad for me and good for someone else. If you're not going to be resentful, then absolutely you should do it. But it's sometimes people do what you said and they make a decision that is bad for themselves and good for others, and then they resent it. And then that could lead to problems later on. They didn't even intend to resent it, but they, you know, they took some dollars from themselves, gave it to someone else, and they feel frustrated by that. So really ask your question yourself first, can I handle this? And if you can't, that's okay. You don't need to be superhuman. But if you can, then yes, be comfortable being as selfless as possible. A great point. I really like that perspective of thinking, am I going to be resentful if I make this decision? Because I do feel like there's a lot of times in our business where we look at a decision, you brought up the example of you know taking dollars out of your pocket to put it to someone else. I think that great leaders in our company do that quite often. And most of the time, it's probably the right decision. But I bet there are a share of times where you might feel resentful about it, or you might not feel good, or maybe it's somebody who just doesn't exhibit gratitude and you don't really want to do something for them. Like those are probably times where maybe you don't make that same decision. So it's it's a good framework to sort of consider uh, for making those sorts of choices. Thank you. I agree. Yeah. And then what do you mean in your framework by be surprised only about being surprised? Okay. What that means is people are complex and you're going to be dealing with a lot of people that have agendas different than your own, that might have gray lines when it comes to integrity and that might end up surprising you. And if you're not, if you're surprised about the fact that you were surprised, that's the problem. Meaning always understand that surprises can and will happen to you. And as long as you have that context, when that does happen, you're not going to fall apart. Just be ready to handle it. And also as a leader, my job as a leader is to not surprise the people who I work for, my board, and also not to surprise my employees. If I have a no surprises mentality, then that also you will build trust. And if I say, hey, I really got to tell our employees about this because if I don't, they can end up being surprised. That's really important. So the two parts to it are minimize surprises for others, mm-hmm. but at the same time, when a surprise happens to you, understand that that is a typical situation. I've been totally surprised when, when I was leading a company and they sold it kind of out from under me without even telling me about it. I've had just numerous experiences in life where I've been very surprised and I've come to realize that this is how life is and shame on you if you're not prepared for it. Yeah. So I just think given the complex nature of people that we're bound to encounter a wide range of different experiences and situations and dealing with people and, and understanding that to me helps somebody to mitigate the emotions that they might feel, the roller coaster that you might feel if somebody disappoints you or what, whatever it might be. And so th- that whole side of that was really good. And then I love that you shared the other side of the coin, which is to minimize surprises for others right? Try to be the, the kind of person who doesn't spring that sort of stuff on the people who you work for or who are working for and with you. Uh, that was a good point as well. That was cool. Thank you, Dan. Yeah. Nice. So David, how have you taken all of the things you've learned in your career and applied it in your personal life? I think one of the decision frameworks that I also talk about is around short and long-term balance. And 
I have the belief that you really do work to live. You don't live to work. And that, that's, you know, it's a cliche, shall we say, but I deeply believe in that. So what does that mean in practical terms? So until COVID, half of the time when I would come home from work, I would actually leave my phone in my car, not even take it into the house with me because I don't want to be distracted. I want to be present with my family and I want to be at the dinner table and spending time with my wife and kids afterwards, present and not distracted with work and phone and keep that those two things separated. I think it's very, very important. If there's vacations, taking care of oneself, exercise, those things are incredibly important to be able to live healthy and happy kind of life. Like I exercise five, six days a week. And again, if you don't take care of yourself, then you're not going to be able to take care of others. So those people that are workaholics, everything is a zero sum game. And if you're spending your time doing that, then you're not spending your time doing potentially other things that that might be more important. So I think that's that's the kind of the way that I approach business is don't be an extremist. Kind of I approach my personal life in, in similar ways. Great insight. This has been really awesome, David. I appreciate all the amazing insights you've shared. Our podcast theme is about changing lives. And as you look into your own future, how do you aspire to change people's lives through the influence that you have? Yeah, I mean, for me, in education, like I am, a meetup is an education because it facilitates community as a platform. That's one, and hopefully it'll be a part of my life for, for a long time. I think the book, main reason I wrote it was really to help to influence positively as many people as, as, as I can in this world. You're only in this world for a short period of time. And how could you have as much of a positive impact as you can? And then when I'm teaching with my students, it's the same kind of thing. So I think the most selfish thing you could possibly do is to try to help others. And I really do try to do that. And it's for purposes of giving me personally a tremendous amount of, of gratification. And I guess that's selfish to be unselfish. And, and that's what I would say. Yeah, I can definitely echo the idea that a tremendous amount of gratification comes from helping others. In the end, I don't think we look at our own personal accomplishments as being the high points of our life or career so much as we see how we helped other people do great things. And that's where you get a significant amount of reward. And you're helping people through teaching your class at Columbia. You're helping people through your book. You're helping people by running this great organization that uh, facilitates all of these amazing connections. And I'm sure there are a lot of other ways that you help people as well. So it's pretty cool. It's been uh, great getting to know you here, David. Thanks so much for being part of the podcast. Thank you. Mutual. I've enjoyed it tremendously. Thank you. Wow, that was awesome. David Siegel, so many great insights and ideas. Thanks again to John Levy for facilitating this amazing connection. I really appreciate it. The range of experiences that David has had over the course of his career and how it has provided him with additional perspective and creative solutions to the challenges that come up in his current role and in his current life. When I heard that, I, I just think about the opportunity that young Cutco Vector people have to take on as much responsibility as possible while you're working with the company. You have a chance to do so many things that are way beyond the scope of what most young people have a chance to do very early in life. And this can provide you with that great perspective. Of course, at times there will be failure. And David shared that, that failure must be viewed in context 
the context that most people do fail when they're taking on challenges. If you're not failing, you're not stretching yourself enough and that mistakes can provide you with the opportunity to have more confidence in the future because you've learned how to overcome those things. I would encourage you guys to download the Meetup app and check out what are the groups around your area that could contribute to the things that you want to learn more about or participate more in in your community and work on establishing great communities in throughout other areas of your life as well, whether it's with Meetup or outside of Meetup. The communities that you establish, the groups that you're a part of are a key piece in creating the success that you want. I loved David's concepts about creating culture in an organization, having collaborative leadership where other people are a part of the process of defining what are the pillars of the organization. Other people are a part of the decision-making process as you're leading a team. But then remembering that culture does have to represent who you are as a leader. So if there's anything that other people come up with that just doesn't fit to you as a leader, it's okay to leave that out as something that's promoted. Otherwise, it will come across as fake. David's book is out March 8th. It's called Decide and Conquer. We will put a link to purchase the book in our show notes at changinglivespodcast.com. And lastly, I want to encourage you all to connect with me, your host of uh, this podcast, Dan Cassetta. Connect with me on Facebook or LinkedIn or Instagram. Those are the places where you typically can find me and be able to communicate with me. And I would just encourage you to reach out and uh, let's have those connections so that uh, we could be a part of each other's journeys. Thanks so much, everyone, for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this special guest episode with David Siegel. Thanks for listening. If you got value from today's episode, please share it with others and consider rating or reviewing us on your podcast player. Subscribing to the podcast is free and ensures that future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. For access to guest bios, show notes, and other resources, visit changinglivespodcast.com. You can sign up there to receive valuable resources for free from people featured on the podcast. And to support our podcast sponsors, visit changinglivespodcast.com slash deals. This is Dan Cassetta signing off. We'll be back in a few days for our next story about changing lives.